0: Hello and welcome to the Venerable Scientist Podcast. This is your host, Saranya Carey. And on this uh, part of the episode, this is part three of Dr. Laura Harry's story. And uh, she is a bioinformatician. If you want to know more of her story, you can go to part one and part two before you listen to this part three of the story. And she talks about her journey through um, science, uh, science and how she grew from one stage to another. And uh, she is currently in um in the industry, and uh, it was interesting to see her, to see her perspective and also her her journey uh, in that because she had uh, she has uh, some quite long journey, and she's given a perspective as a mother also. And uh, I hope you listen to this uh, third part, which is more of the PhD journey. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy. So um. Dr. Laura, um, at this point, we are at where you're talking about uh, you transitioning to back to academia. Yeah. But uh, doing but doing a PhD online and yes, in, a, in uh, what was it named? What was the name of the PhD? Uh,
1: so the PhD is in biomedical informatics. Oh, yeah. Um, and it actually was another combined experimental and computational dissertation. Mm. So in that case, the primary focus was on the computation. Mm-hmm. I um, developed a computational approach that was able to predict pathway activity changes associated with antibiotic resistance In Uh a bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus. People Uh think of it as MRSA. MRSA? So, um, MRSA, yes. And so, um, MRSA.
0: What does that mean?
1: resistant Staphylococcus aureus.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Say (laughs) say it again in case someone didn't hear that.
1: Yes, methylene resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Um, And so the computer uh, that I put together um, predicted that the lysine pathway Mm. was associated with antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. So then after that prediction was made, I went to the wet bench, got some Petri dishes, grew these bacteria in the Petri dishes, and then just played with the concentration of... Well, aspartate and lysine, because that's the start and the stop of that pathway.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And then we found that there were changes associated with the resistance when we played with the concentrations of aspartate and lysine. Mm -hmm. So that ended up being the dissertation. Again, why the cell is using these lysine changes, I don't know. All I was able to do was get a computer to predict it and mm-hmm. then verify it because On it had not been predicted before.
0: Mm. Then verify it in the lab, right?
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay. So um, could you explain to someone just a little bit about what lysing is? Uh, what, what is that? And okay. so how does that contribute to... Yeah,
1: All cells, bacteria, human, animal, all cells have uh, 20 amino acids that they need in order to build proteins. Mm -hmm. Proteins are the building blocks for cells. Mm -hmm. And so some cells are able to make certain amino acids, and then some cells need to ingest or acquire those amino acids. Mm -hmm. And this is some of the subtle variation between species. Like Mm. humans, for example, I think we make 8 of the 20 amino acids we have to eat, the Mm. remaining 12. Mm. A dog, for example, can make like 16 or 18 of the amino acids. Mm. So I guess I can eat my dog for the rest of them. But anyway, I'm not going to eat my dog. Um, (laughs) But bacteria are no different. So bacteria can make some of the 20, but they still need some of the 20. Yeah. And in the case of Staphylococcus, it actually has this pathway Mm. that takes aspartate, which is one amino acid, and Mm. converts it to lysine, which is another amino acid. Mm. And what I was doing was I was playing with the concentrations. If I gave the cell a lot of aspartate... Mm -hmm. I would then look at, is that cell going to be more or less resistant to antibiotics?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then if I gave it less aspartate, is that cell more or less resistant to antibiotics? Mm -hmm. So by playing with the concentrations of the aspartate and the lysine, I then could see if it had an impact on the antibiotic resistance. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So... Um, What are are the conclusions, like, suggestions when it comes to the aspartate and lysine in in antibiotic resistance?
1: Well, I mean, the main conclusion for me was that my computational prediction Mm. worked. My program worked because that was the whole point of the dissertation Mm. was to make a computational approach that could predict things that weren't being predicted before. Oh, okay. So I never got into the weeds, so to speak, on mm. why the mm. cell is involved in lysine and aspartate with antibiotic resistance. I just know that it is.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So it is very computational. It's, um, it wasn't about the science. It was about the methodology.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Okay, great. So, um this you did you did it for how long the PhD? Uh 5 years. Oh, I still teaching, right?
1: Yes, the whole time.
0: So, when did you get your PhD? Which year?
1: Uh that was in April of 2020 was when I defended, uh technically got it a month later.
0: Okay. And I think at uh, at this moment you had mentioned that uh, you are still Teaching, right?
1: Yes that that was a fun semester um, mm. because that was also when COVID hit. Mm. I defended my PhD three weeks into mandatory quarantine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was terrified that one of my mentors would get sick and we would have to postpone the defense. Mm. And in the meantime, I was teaching five classes. Two of them were laboratory classes, mm. and suddenly I had to redesign all of those to fit online. Mm. Fortunately, I had 10 years of online teaching experience because yeah. I started online when I had my babies. Mm. But you know, no. Well, I don't want to say no one else. Few other of my colleagues had that experience. Mm. So then I ended up kind of helping them Everyone. transition their classes in a hurry. Also, I mean, it was a stressful three months.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you you had mentioned when you're starting off into teaching, you are teaching nurse, nursing students, right? Yes. yes. And it was not very researchy. It was like uh, units that have to do with medicine. Correct. Right? So, uh, so at this point, um, Laura. Yes. Is it me or you who has a notification on? Um,
1: it's no? me. It's because we're starting to get to that eleven o'clock hour. I'll try oh. to shut it up.
0: Okay. So we have like twelve. Uh, oh wait.
1: About four or about 20 minutes.
0: Yeah. 20 minutes. Okay, great. Um, so at this point, what was I saying? What was I saying? Mm. Yeah. At this point, you you were teaching very non-researchy um, units, right?
1: Uh, a lot of hands-on. Um, Before, you know, like, like... Al- earlier
0: on, you started off with non-researchy units.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Then you introduced the research part when you were interested in Python, or how did that go about?
1: Okay, so when I was at University of Phoenix, mm. there I wasn't even teaching nurses. I was teaching, like, business administration people. What? So the kind of classes I was teaching was very general, like general nutrition, mm. um, the reason to exercise, mental health, that kind of thing. mm when I got to Davenport, there I was teaching nurses. Mm. So I was teaching like human anatomy and physiology. Mm. And I was teaching microbiology. Mm. But I wasn't teaching research, it was simply enough for them to be clinicians. Okay. Then when I started the PhD, mm. I got really excited about my research mm. and I would go into the classroom and I would share with the students during breaks, you know, mm. Hey, mm. guess what I just found on my computer. Mm. And then they got excited listening to me get excited. Yeah. So then students would come to me and say, Hey, Laura, I want to do an honors project for class. Mm-hmm. Can I do a computer thing for an honors project? Mm-hmm. Sure. Why not? Why not? And then another student would say, well, I don't want to do an honors project, but I saw Mike over there got a poster, and I want a poster. Mm. Can I do a project for a poster?
2: Mm.
1: Sure, fine. And then, well, you know, I saw so-and-so over there got a paper. Can I come do a project for a paper? Mm. Sure, why not? Come on. And these were nursing students, so they knew Mm. no programming. Yeah. And I would simply say to them, can you cut and paste? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, well, if you can cut and paste, then I can teach you how to put files together, Mm. and I'll do some of the programming if you do the file, data cleaning, and preparation, Mm. and we'll work together. Wow. And so we developed a little group of Mm. nursing students who then graduated and became alumni. Mm. And then some faculty got involved and we expanded into the wet bench and some other stuff. Mm. And that's really how Harris Interdisciplinary Research started. Yeah, was just one student became two students, became 15 students Mm. that then wanted to just do research, even if it meant cutting and pasting or presenting or writing or whatever they could fit in with their schedule.
0: So at this point, you're training on some computational biology. Some, some.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. While still in PhD school.
0: Yeah. On
1: my own through Davenport. Yes.
0: Mm, that's interesting. So, uh, what what happens when you finish your PhD?
1: Um, I'm still stuck in the house in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and so I stayed at at Davenport for almost a year after that. Mm. But I really wanted to get more into research Mm -hmm. because the whole point of me going for my PhD to begin with Mm. was to go back and become a study director at Pfizer. That was my goal. Mm. And then I had kids and then I started teaching and life
2: Mm. happened. Mm.
1: So I wanted to go back to that. Mm. And so I left Davenport for Michigan State University because mm-hmm. that was my alma Mater. Mm-hmm. They taught me how to do research. research. Yeah. And I was hoping when I was there that I would get an opportunity to do research. Mm. The challenge became that the department I was at at Michigan State viewed research differently than I did. mm So I was bioinformatic research. Mm -hmm. I had this bioinformatic research lab from Davenport. Mm -hmm. But MSU wanted me to do more training-based research. Mm -hmm. How do people learn to use high-performance computing? Mm -hmm. And again, I wasn't interested in how people learn. I was interested that they learned. Mm So it very quickly became this situation at MSU where they liked me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I liked them, mm-hmm. I did a good job, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the job I mm-hmm. wanted to do. Yeah. And then came NeuroX1, the startup company that I'm now working with. Okay. Um, because there I get to do my bioinformatic research like all day long, mm-hmm. every day,
2: mm-hmm.
1: at midnight when I feel like it. Yeah, At 6 a.m. when I don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's okay. I, I have fun doing it. Mm. Um, I'm still 100% remote because we are a computational research company. So, you know, I have people in Texas and I have people in Carolina and I have people in California and all over. Mm. So we're all remote, Um, but we are uh, approaching lab space. And so that will be fun to start coordinating and... Uh, moving forward on some of those things, but, okay. uh, yeah.
0: So you quit your position? Yes. Oh, okay. Interesting. How, how is it quitting? Uh, was it a permanent job, right?
1: Oh yes. It was a tenure track position. Yes.
0: So you've gotten a tenure, then you have applied for a job in a startup company. How yes. was that like?
1: Well, a lot of people will say that it's horribly stressful and most of them won't do it because of the stress. Mm. Um, I actually find it invigorating. Mm. So, yes, I mean, a startup company comes with risks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have very tight deadlines because we need to get funding and our survival depends on that funding. Mm. And so there is some pressure that is experienced but expected
2: Mm. in
1: terms of i need to get things to work they need to work well they need to work quickly Mm. but i've never shied from a challenge i like a challenge i'm kind of a competitive person Mm. so for me to do that i mean i find it exciting if i have a challenge Mm. um and so it's not that stressful for me in this environment but other people get stressed easy by it Mm. um i mean msu was stable Mm. i mean it was a very good paycheck and you know you knew what you were always doing Mm. but then that kind of led to a bit of boredom Mm. so you know here, I don't necessarily know what my next project mm. is going to be. Yeah, And going into neurology now, I'm learning about a bunch of diseases of the brain I'd never even heard of before.
2: Hmm.
1: So that gives me a nice stretch of not only my computational skills, mm. but now my biology understanding as well. So that's kind of fun.
0: Tell, tell us more about this setup. Yeah. Um... What, what is it? What do you do? Tell us more about this startup. Uh, Neuro, Neuro?
1: Neuro X1, yes. Neuro uh, X1, yes. So basically, we have about 10 people now, mm-hmm. and we're divided into what I'll call three main teams. Mm-hmm. So there's the administrators, the people that are doing the HR, the benefits, Clowns. Um, they're lobbying for our funding, you know, the CEO, the CSO, the big wigs, so Uh to speak.
2: Uh
1: Um, so there's three people like that. Uh Then there's my team who are the target identification. Uh So my main job is to use computers to predict gene targets that we can then develop drugs around. And Mm -hmm. that's the third part. The third part is a team that actually uses computers to design the drugs based on the gene I told them they should develop a drug for. Okay. Now that we're getting computational predictions of drugs, Mm -hmm. we have to validate in the wet bench. Mm -hmm. And so I'm starting to work with the company to write those Mm -hmm. experimental protocols So we can then make the drug in real life, Mm. bring it to a laboratory, put it in a Petri dish or an animal model, and verify that the computational pipeline for drug discovery and development that we have Mm. is accurate. Mm. And then, of course, build these compounds until they eventually go to clinic. Yeah. So it's a really grassroots movement to Mm. build a Pfizer-like company based on computational science um, Mm -hmm. and artificial intelligence and that sort of thing, um, which I really love doing because I wanted to be a study director in pharma anyway. So now I'm really directing studies at the computational side and at the experimental side
0: something that you wanted to do early why did you want to do it early why did you want to go up the ranks because initially that's why why you wanted to do a phd right
1: yes yes so why did Um, you want to move up well i mean i to me it's boring to always stay in one place and i like a ladder and if i can look up i can get up so that's kind of my thinking um and i like the autonomy you know, I like being able to be the person in charge of things. I like being the expert at something. Mm. Um, I feel that if you're at that level, you can contribute more mm. to the goal and to society at large. Mm. So, you know, the, the bigger or higher I can climb, the more I can give back. So that's always kind of been my thinking, you know, throughout my whole life. I, I think I got that from my dad personally. But, um, mm. yeah, I mean, that's that's why I watched all the study directors at Pfizer and I watched how they could coordinate things and all the different hands, you know, different uh, experiments they were involved in. Mm. And that just inspired me to do the same thing.
0: Okay, what are they planning next? well what are you planning next?
1: Um, Future planning. whatever life throws at me mm. since I, uh, I I'm at life's mercy. Mm. Uh, I like what I'm doing right now. Mm. So I really do like the computational side. I like doing the drug ID. I'm not a huge fan of the drug design, so I'm glad I got a team that does that. Mm. Um, not that I can't, but they're way better at it than I am. Yeah. And then I, I like the blend mm. between the computational and the experimental. Mm. I was developing that when I was at, at Davenport through mm-hmm. the Harris Interdisciplinary Research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, you know, Davenport wasn't a research place. They didn't have the facilities. Um, so that was a challenge. Mm-hmm. This, at least, uh, NeuroX1, allows me to get those facilities and to progress my research in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with that said, I do acknowledge I, I do miss teaching
2: mm-hmm. once in a
1: while. Mm. So, I have continued Harris Interdisciplinary Research mm. as a nonprofit. So, wow. then that way, people from underprivileged or underrepresented backgrounds mm. can work with me on a project that is not neurologically related because, you know, i got to keep intellectual property where it is. Mm. Um, but then, you know, they get experience in bioinformatics or they get experience in designing a wet bench component depending Mm. on what the students needs and background are. I've had some students that are already medical doctors in Nigeria for example and Mm. they'll come ask for my advice on well how can I turn this into a clinical trial and Mm. I'll help them with Mm. that. So, you know, that gives me a chance to give back in my spare time, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I learned at MSU. I mean, that that section is greatly needed. When Mm -hmm. I was at Davenport, it was only Davenport students. But at MSU, it became the world. Mm -hmm. And I found myself going from 15 to 80 students in like a month. Wow! It was overwhelming. I had to shut down. I still am very arm's length with certain you know people because I just don't have the support network to handle 80 people again. Mm. But now I have an opportunity to build that through taking donations, hiring help. Um, and the more I can take in donations and hire help, then the more people I can reach out to and offer experiences to. So... It's one of these things I'm just starting and uh, seems to have some momentum when I can get the time (laughs) to Mm -hmm. devote to it.
0: Okay. I I love that you do this uh, Harris Interdisciplinary Group. Yes. Now, like, it it seems like teaching is your first love, kind of. I don't know. You love teaching.
1: Uh, It's not teaching per se. It's helping humanity. It's... Helping humanity.
0: Helping humanity. But yes. what, what do you really enjoy in that? Like, what what part of doing that do you enjoy?
1: I like the fulfillment that comes out of it.
0: Mm. So, like, if someone. I'm talking
1: about teaching specifically, there's mm. generally an aha moment that occurs mm. where you can just see the light bulb go on in someone that didn't understand and Something. suddenly does. yeah. And whether that's me dealing with my daughter teaching her chemistry because she's struggling in her chemistry class right now, mm. or me teaching microbiology to nurses, or me teaching bioinformatics to someone interested in research, mm. there's always that aha moment. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say I like the teaching per se. I mean, people say I'm a patient person. I'm really not a patient person. (laughs) But I like that aha moment. And I'm willing to wait for Mm. that aha moment. But that aha moment isn't exclusive to teaching. Mm. I get that aha moment when I discover something new from a computational prediction. Mm. Or when my experiment at the bench validates something that my computer predicted. Those are all my personal aha moments. Yeah. And so it's those moments that, you know, I really enjoy, that I look forward to, um, that I keep trying to go after.
0: Mm. Okay. So you're planning to keep on doing this? Um, oh, yes. This NGO yes. thing and hoping to get more funds for it? Yes. To get funds? Does it have Correct. a website?
1: Yes. yes, um, it does. Um, it's harrisir.org. I believe we are just setting the website up now. Um, and my board member friend terry has been bothering me to get on that so thanks for the reminder hmm. um but yeah i can give you a link to that and you can include it
0: okay great um this is great i i, I love this um so how you you said you said before you were able to deal with students right uh, many students yes. when you were at michigan right yes so how are you planning to do this? Uh you're planning to get funds for this uh, group and uh get more help when Yes. Oh, okay.
1: So basically the idea is mm. to set it up similar to an academic lab.
2: Mm. So an
1: academic lab traditionally has your undergrads, your graduate students, your postdocs and then mm. your mentor. Mm. So if I then am the mentor mm. I can then bring people in underneath me at mm. a graduate student or postdoc level mm. assuming that I can train them and that they're sufficient at the methods you know that I use and you know can contribute etc then mm. they can teach the undergrads and the high school students yeah So it becomes this step-down approach where, yeah, I'll have some teaching with the undergrads and high school students, but Mm. I'm not their direct peer-to-peer mentor, so to speak. They'd go to a second tier. Mm. And it's working really well right now for me because I have some of those people from Davenport. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, Amber Park. Mm -hmm. Amber started with me about five years ago as a freshman Mm -hmm. at at, uh, Davenport. Mm -hmm. She graduated um, and went on to medical school. So -hmm. she's actually getting that MD that I never Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. Super proud of her. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But now she's coming back and she's saying, Hey, Laura, my professors at medical school say I should get as many paper publications as I can. Mm Mm-hmm. Can I come help you? Mm. Oh, sure you can. Here's some projects with undergrads that need help. Mm. Go help them right now. Yeah. You get your name out of paper. Yeah. And so now that I have some of those relationships like Amber that mm. are already developed, um, they can start stepping into that role of, mm. I'll call it graduate student slash postdoc. mm And so, you know, once she's up and going and, you know, she's working with her group, then it can be, all right, how many students can you take? Mm. Or what kind of projects do you want to do? Mm. And so that level then kind of gets a little bit of their own research autonomy, Mm. which is kind of cool for them to expand their mind and what they're thinking. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see this developing over time. Of course, time will tell if I'm successful,
0: yeah, yeah, but I'm hoping it does well this is this is great. I hope it, it does well. I hope it grows it will, and yeah if
1: it fails, it will not be for lack of interest because I have way too many undergrad and grad students wanting to be involved at the ground level. I just need that middle support network,
0: yeah, yeah, it will come, yeah, it will come, okay, um since you've been in industry and uh, academia, how would you compare the two?
1: radically different Mm -hmm. um in industry you have to know what you're doing you have to do it you have to do it right and you have to do it quickly Mm. in academia there is a lot more room for error Mm -hmm. Um, and that's because of the teaching component of academia Mm. you don't learn without failing Mm. and so you have to have a safe space in order to fail or otherwise you're never going to learn yeah. and academia is built in such a way to afford people that safe space mm. or at least that's the idea Yeah, now there are some problems with that that but- inherently come up like if a mentor has external funding and Mm. the external funding is from industry or the government Mm. then there can be this trickle down effect to the students where suddenly they're under more pressure than is desirable yeah and so you know there is that but then that is also something to learn because if you don't learn how to deal with the pressure and the quickness the pace Mm. then maybe you know industry isn't for you long term
2: yeah
1: so you know academia gives benefits that industry doesn't um Mm. but then industry gets things done quickly Mm. i was always impressed with how fast i would get a result from Mm. an experiment in industry Mm -hmm. and the results would be very good and and not much trouble to interpret Generally Mm. speaking, I mean, you know, biology is is always tricky. Yeah, But in academia, you have a lot more error, Mm. where you get a result from a student and you're scratching your head going, okay, is that the real result or is that because you screwed something up? Mm. And then you kind of got to coach the student and figure out what exactly is going on where in industry you have a standard operating procedure that you Um. wrote that's in a book that was approved by the FDA Mm. you know so yeah completely different environments but pros and cons for both of them